Anyone know the number one cause of weather-related deaths in the United States each year? It is not floods, it is not tornadoes, nor is it hurricanes, it is lightning. An average of 100 people per year are killed by lightning strikes. In recent years, lightning deaths have occurred while people were boating, um, standing under a tree, playing soccer, swimming, riding on a lawnmower, fishing, of course. There's a good reason to give up that pseudo sport. <laughs> Waited all week to say that line. <laughs> Golfing, mountain climbing, and bike riding. Most, most of those things are good things, and yet they all end in death. But when you stop to consider some facts, it's no wonder so many are struck by lightning. For example, at any given time, meaning right now, there are 2,000 thunderstorms happening somewhere in the world, which produce an average of 10, uh, which uh, produce an average of 100 light, lightning strikes per second, or 8 million strikes per day. In the U.S. alone, we have 100,000 thunderstorms uh, per year, which account for 20 million strikes. Uh, with those stats, it's amazing more people are not killed. Here's another interesting fact. A typical lightning bolt contains 1 billion volts, not that bad, but up to 200,000 amps of current. It's no wonder they can be so destructive. Now, many of us have heard, perhaps you've even shared, uh, that lightning travels from the ground up, which is not technically true. And that the highly charged invisible bolt of lightning travels from the cloud to the ground in a series of steps forming a bit of a channel. It, lo it, it looks for something to strike usually, now get this, usually uh, something higher. Uh, once the ground is made and the circuit is complete, the visible light travels back up the channel, the whole process taking about half a second. Now, your chances of being struck by lightning in the U.S. are about 1 in 600,000. Share this as a little aside. Uh, you, you have a greater chance of being struck by lightning three times in your lifetime than you do winning the state lottery. Save your money. Uh, by the way, uh, th those of you on your way back to Florida should know that your chances of being struck by uh, lightning are higher because Florida is the lightning capital of the U.S., which is to say, perhaps some of you summer residents should consider staying in Boone. Now, think about it, uh, a 1 in 600,000 chance of being struck by lightning. But there are some other ways you can raise the odds a bit, besides moving to Florida. Uh, you can raise your three iron in a thunderstorm. You can fly a kite with a key on it, or you can go stand under the tallest tree that you can find. You ever drive by a, a golf course and it's raining hard, maybe thunder and lightning, and you see the golfers all standing underneath the tree? That's dumb. Let me suggest another way that you can raise the odds to an unbelievable one to one. You see, this is not a science class, and I'm not talking about physical lightning now. I'm talking about spiritual lightning, if you will. Paul calls them the flaming arrows of the evil one or the fiery darts of the devil. And there is a way that you can guarantee such strikes, a one-to-one -one ratio. How do you do that? Very simply, choose to be the tallest tree in the forest. Choose to stand tall for God, and you will draw attention you will draw fire. 
How do I know that? Because uh, it happened to godly people throughout the Bible. It even happened to Jesus. The story is found in Matthew chapter 4. Now, I'm going to take, just so you know, I'm going to take a little break um, this morning from the book of Revelation because I have been talking about for months now about how things are going to get work. We're going to see increased persecution for followers of Jesus. So how do we stay faithful? That's the question I want to answer today. How do we stay faithful more? How do we stand high for Christ in the midst of such temptation and opposition Matthew chapter 4. Thirty years after his birth, what we're going to celebrate next month, Jesus, the Christ, is about to be revealed to the world. His kingdom is at hand. In fact, that's his first message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The forerunner, John the Baptist, has announced his coming. Jesus himself has been baptized, although he had never sinned, meaning he was perfect and had nothing of which to repent. Remember, John the Baptist's baptism was that. It was a baptism to repentance. But he was baptized to identify with sinful humanity, to obediently um, follow the will of the Father, and to set an example um, for us. And by doing so, the Christ was revealed. The king was crowned, if you will, and his kingdom was offered. Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, empowering him for service. And the Father himself said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And those are the last words that we read in Matthew chapter 3. And so you expect great things to happen. Hey, it's here. Uh, But then like a lightning strike, something unexpected happens. We read about it in Matthew 4, verses 1 and following say this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted, Forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I don't have a life verse, but if I were to pick one, that might be it. Then the devil uh, took him into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. It's kind of the corner of the temple, built very, very high. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Can can you believe that? The very first thing that Jesus had to face after his revelation, this is my beloved son, was not the adoring crowds, not the worshiping disciples, not even the sick whom he would eventually heal. The very first thing he was faced was opposition from Satan himself. And from this story, we learn some very important truths on how to face temptation, even opposition. Further, we see Satan tempts Jesus to receive all the kingdoms of the earth. Don't miss that. It's the reason I picked this this text for this morning. To receive all the kingdoms of the earth, write them, 
prematurely before his work on the cross. To be clear, Jesus will receive the kingdoms of the earth, but it was not yet time. We'll see that next week. This morning, however, I want us to look at the timing of his temptation, the nature of his temptation, the victory over his temptation, all, you see, instructive to us in hopes that we too can be prepared for the forces of evil being unleashed against us in increasing, increasing measure. I don't know if you've turned on the news lately in increasing measure. Consider this story. Jesus was just entering His public ministry. You would expect Him again to burst on the scene with a miracle or two, you know, heal a sick person, calm a storm, walk on water, raise the dead, drive out a demon. That's not what happens. The first thing that Jesus faces is the prince of demons, Satan himself. Could, could that be true of, of us if we seek to follow Christ? I suppose we should talk about the Satan for just a moment. In the Scripture, he's called the old serpent, the slanderer. He's got a lot of really nice names. A murderer, the father of lies, or adversary, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the accuser of the brothers, Beelzebub, which is the prince of demons, Abaddon and Apollyon, which both mean destroyer, the devil, and here he is called the tempter. He is openly opposed to God and to His purposes, and don't miss it, He is opposed to His people. He started His opposition uh, to God by attacking those created in the image of God as early as the Garden of Eden where He successfully tempted Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. He, he later appears in heaven in the book of Job requesting permission to devour Job. Later, He wanted to sift Peter, like wheat. So later, Peter tells us he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone, listen, seeking you to devour. He is out to get us, to oppose us, to cause us to stumble, to devour us. And we will see the culmination of his war against us, his ultimate defeat soon, soon, in our study of the book of Revelation. I want you to understand, he is not an abstract idea representing evil. He is as real as you and me. Now, He is not as powerful as, as God. I've said this over and over. He doesn't possess God's attributes. He's not omnipresent, which means He's probably not here uh, in Boone, North Carolina, but His forces of evil are. So we're told to resist Him to stand firm, to be aware of his schemes, to draw near to God, who will then draw near to us, causing the devil to flee. If you don't get anything else, get that. That is how we fight the devil, not by focusing on him, but by drawing near to God, which causes the devil to flee. That's the way you successfully fight. Beyond any hope of redemption, Satan is and always will be the enemy of our souls. He's the enemy, but his end is sure. Victory belongs to God. Satan, by the way, is already defeated, and he will uh, be ultimately and finally defeated when Christ returns in great glory. But until then, he fires his deadly arrows like lightning against us, and he will fire his deadly arrow arrows against you if you choose to stand high for God. That's what I have been challenging us to do for several months now, to count the cost and stand up and be counted. 
It's what the se- seven letters to the seven churches challenge us to do. But listen, I want you to know, if you choose to do that, it will paint a target on your chest. He will come after you. You say, well, Scott, can I just be a quiet Christian, you know, incognito, fly under the radar, keep my head low? I am not actually sure the Scripture speaks of such a Christian. Which means if you are a Christian and nobody knows it, maybe you aren't. Tempter is one of is the one who stood against this newly revealed Christ. Since Jesus entered his public ministry, Satan was prepared to do battle. I find the timing very interesting because you see uh, the very important principle for for us today is this: if God is active, then the enemy will be active as well. Say that again: if the enemy is active, or excuse me, if God is active, you can expect Satan to be active as well. Listen. If Jesus would have just stayed a carpenter, you know, we could sing all the Christmas songs, Bethlehem and all that. If he would have just stayed a carpenter, not fulfilling the Father's purpose for him, everything would have been just fine. It would have been okay. He could have kept on making yokes and hand tools and small pieces of furniture. But as soon as he stepped forward as the rightful Christ, things heated up and life got tough. And I'm suggesting that the same will be true, true for you. That, that if you decide to get serious for God, which is what I have been calling us to do, maybe you have done that. Haven't you found that, that, is a, that everything seems to just start falling apart? I mean, as long as you went on your merry way, tipping your hat to Christianity, everything seemed to go more or less okay. But you decide to start being a fully devoted follower of Christ. You know, read your Bible. Get serious about your prayer life. Make a commitment to be involved in some ministry of the church. Share your faith to love Jesus, to put yourself aside. Let's get down to brass tacks and decide you're going to be a good father, a godly father, a good husband, a good mother, a good wife, a good brother, a good sister, a good roommate, whatever, you decide you're going to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus and stop playing, you can almost feel the Spirit of God descend on you in a new way with new power, and all of a sudden it heats up and everything falls apart. Why? I mean, if you're going to just follow, why isn't it just a rose-strewn path? What do you do then? We have a tendency at those moments to question ourselves, to question God, God, what am I doing wrong? Why am I facing so many trials, so much temptation? Because we've listened to the words of the prosperity teachers and think we must lack faith. We must be doing something wrong. And the real answer is, here it is, the enemy. The enemy of your souls. See, in the words of Steve Lawson in his book on the life of Job, when all hell breaks loose, you might just be doing something right. We do not use our circumstances as a measure of discipleship. So when we get serious, it should not surprise us that the enemy is active. In fact, we should expect it. He will attack our families, our relationships, our commitments, all of those things that we hold most precious and dear. Let me say this. Many of you are facing some of the most difficult challenges of your life. I know because you've told me. 
Some of you are facing the most significant challenges uh, in your marriage. Your marriages are in shambles. Some of you are facing significant challenges with your children. The enemy is tempting. Our adversary is prowling around seeking someone to devour. The battle for your souls and your family is on. Here's the question. What are you going to do about it? Surrender? You're going to give in? It's a battle. Some of you are facing financial challenges. Some of you are facing health challenges. I suspect some of you are uh, battling discouragement for any number of reasons Um, right, right now. I know that it's pretty in here and it's Christmas and supposed to be holly jolly and all that and you are anything but. You're upset with your jobs. Uh, you're struggling in school, you've been disappointed by a friend, you're unhappy with the, the church, you don't like someone here or something, maybe you're not even sure why. I want to challenge us to not be unaware of the devil's schemes. He will use anything and everything to discourage us, to sidetrack us, to keep us from fulfilling God's purpose for our lives. He did it to Jesus. At least he tried to. When God is active, we can expect the enemy to be active as well. God is active. So let's not be surprised when the forces of evil show up. There should be no such thing as a sneak attack. We should never never catch us unawares. We should expect it and battle it the way Jesus did. Listen, let me say this to you right now, okay? Here's the best way you can get the devil to leave you alone. Ready? Here it is. Live for yourself. Live for what you can get out of life. Pursue the American dream. Do anything but live for Jesus. I promise he will leave you alone because then you're already his. Live for Jesus and your inviting attack. I want you to notice a couple of other things before we move to our next point. Don't worry, most of my point, most of my sermon is in point one, so... Here we go. First thing I want you to notice is verse 1 tells us that it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness. Do you notice that? Why did he do that? Why would he do that to, to be tempted by Satan? It was the Spirit who led Jesus into battle. But notice, Jesus was led by the Spirit, which means the Spirit was there. Luke says it this way, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. The point is, you do not have to face these battles alone. As a child of God, you are filled with the very Spirit of God. Find joy joy in that, find peace in that. You are never alone, no matter how alone you feel. Never alone. Why did Jesus... Another question that I have, why did Jesus have to face these temptations? To prove himself a worthy savior? To prove himself perfect? To do what Israel, by the way, I don't have time to go into that, to to do what Israel failed to do. To prove himself worthy, not to the Father, not to himself, not even to Satan, but to us. He's worthy. 
Which is why later, the author of the book of Hebrews will say, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And then he says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. There is, listen to me, there is not a temptation, there is not a trial, there's not opposition that you have faced that Jesus is unfamiliar with. They killed him that he is unfamiliar with. He faced them all successfully as our great high priest, and he can come to our aid, help us when we are facing similar temptations and opposition. Remember, he said, if they oppose me, the teacher, they're going to persecute you as well. Now, by the way, we learned something very important here about temptation that I must not skip over. Jesus was faced with temptation, but never sinned, which means temptation is not sin. It's what you do with the temptation that makes it sin. You cannot do anything about the temptations that bombard your physical, emotional, and spiritual senses all day long. But you can keep uh, from acting on those temptations. Martin Luther said it this way, you cannot keep the birds from flying around your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. So why does God allow these trials in our lives? Why does He allow these temptations? Why is it not health, wealth, and prosperity as some would have us believe? You know the answer. We don't like the answer sometimes, let's be honest. You know the answer. He does it to prove us, to put us through the fire and to find us genuine, to, to refine us and to mature us. Peter said it this way, in this you great... Here's a, here's a Christmas promise. In this you greatly rejoice, joy to the world, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, Uh, the salvation of your souls. The trials and temptations are sure to come, my brothers and sisters, but when they do, they're fulfilling God's purposes in your life. So here we see that when we get serious about God, when we stand tall for God, we can expect the trials and temptations to come. What do those temptations look like? That brings us finally, quickly, to our second point, the nature of his temptation. Three times Satan came to Jesus to tempt him. And notice, he came when Jesus, don't miss this, he came when Jesus was at his weakest point after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Look at the temptations. The first is found in verse 3. Jesus had just fasted for over a month, and so Satan came with a physical temptation. Yeah, he said it. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, Satan knew that Jesus was God. He was simply saying, since you are the Son of God, there's no reason for you of all people to experience physical hunger. Turn these rocks into bread. Well, what was Satan attempting to do there? He was tempting Jesus to satisfy his own needs apart from the will of the Father. He was trying to, he was trying to elevate Jesus' physical needs above his spiritual needs. This is the way Satan gets us 
if you can say it this way, American Christians today. Jesus had the power to turn the stones into bread. It's no big deal. He would later take a boy's lunch and feed like 20,000 people. But Satan was tempting him to use his powers and, and, and that he had laid aside for God's purposes then to identify with humanity, to bear our sins, to be the Savior of the world, to use those powers to accomplish his own ends, which would have deterred him, kept him from the mission. What might that look like for us? We might also try to meet physical needs, ignoring the more important spiritual needs in our lives. Don't we do it every day? We might set goals to promote ourselves physically. I'll ask you, how much time do you spend in physical exercise as opposed to spiritual exercise? Make life comfortable to elevate ourselves in the eyes of people, all the while failing to meet our more important spiritual needs and ignoring God's plan for our lives. Satan tempts us with the physical luxuries of life. You see, the parable of the sower is true for us. The cares of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth can choke out the reality of faith. We must not be unaware of his schemes. Second temptation comes in verses 5 and 6. Look at that with me again. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Isn't that great? Satan was saying, Come on, you're the Son of God. God, your Father will not allow you to be hurt. Throw yourself down from the temple. Surely God's angels will take care of you. If you won't use your own power to meet your needs, prove that you're the son of God by having God use his power to save you. That was the temptation. In doing so, Jesus would have been putting God to the test, tempting God to fulfill purposes outside of the mission. It would be demanding God's miraculous protection as proof of God's care. Does that sound familiar? In American Christianity? The bottom line is this. To test God is to demonstrate doubt, which is exactly what Satan wanted Jesus to do. The same is true for us. When we doubt God's care for us, we are falling prey. Listen, you are falling prey to Satan's schemes, believing the lies of the evil one. God loves you. He cares for you. He proved it by sending his own son to die for you. What more does he need to do? Don't miss, by the way, what Satan does here. Jesus quoted scripture to Satan in the first temptation, so Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever thought that the enemy might just misuse scripture in your life to tempt you, to destroy you? He actually quoted Scripture. Satan knows the Scripture probably better than you do. He takes a little truth and twists it, try to use it against Jesus, which is the way he will uh, try to trip us up as well. He'll just mix in, a, take a little bit of truth with a lot of error, get us confused and sidetracked, masquerading as an angel of light. It'll come in the form of false teachings and heresies that sound good and scriptural and throws in a verse here and there and... Anything to get us to disbelieve God or to get sidetracked and put Him to the test. 
Third and final attempt comes in verses 8 and 9. Look at that. Again, it says this, and this is the reason I'm preaching this text today, by the way, in, in our study of Revelation 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The implication is, I can give this to you. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan was offering a shortcut. Full messianic authority, full rule, which rightly belonged to Jesus anyway, by sidestepping the mission, not to mention an introduction of idolatry. The kingdoms of this world are currently under Satan's control. Remember, he's the God of this world. But, but his rule is short-lived. He knows that he was defeated at the cross. There's coming a day that while Jesus currently sits at the right hand of the Father, the kingdoms of this world will one day become fully his. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We'll see that next week. But now was not the time. Notice, at first Jesus or Satan tempted Jesus to do something for himself. Then he tempted Jesus to have God do something for him. Now he tempted Jesus to allow Satan to do something for him. He drops all pretense. It's a direct frontal attack. Worship me and see what I can do for you. As ridiculous as that sounds, people worship all kinds of things today except God for the perceived benefits. We've seen in our study of Revelation that they will continue to worship demons even when they know that it's God's wrath being poured out. So, very quickly, how did Jesus respond to these temptations? Last, final point and conclusion. His victory over temptation. But, but, by the way, ever since Christ walked on the earth, men have tried to figure out the best way to deal with temptation. Some have tried to do it by removing themselves from culture altogether. Something the evangelical church does a little bit by living in its evangelical bubble and not being out in the world. Remove themselves altogether, shutting themselves up in these things called monasteries and convents. Um, uh, Benedict of Nursia, who lived in the 6th um, century, thought he would increase grace and remove temptation by wearing a very rough shirt of coarse hair, being very uncomfortable, you see, and living for three years in a desolate cave, having his friends bring him just enough food to survive barely, uh, lowering it into the cave via a, a cord. Once he threw himself into a clump of thorns and briars until his body was covered with bleeding wounds, all to escape the temptations of the world. Did it work? <laughs> Others have tried to overcome temptation by denying it. Yes, denying it. Jovinian, who was a 5th century, uh, heretical 5th century monk, taught that after a person was baptized, he was free forever from the devil's power. <laughs> Don't you wish that was true? Uh, by the way, Jerome, who was a contemporary of Jovinian, wisely pointed out that baptism does not drown the devil. So what's the best way to overcome temptation? We have the greatest example right before us in the person of Jesus, the one we are following, you see. 
meaning we should follow his example if we expect to stand tall when the fiery darts come. How did he respond? I see three things here. First, he faced Satan in the power of the Spirit. I said that before. Remember, when he was full of the Holy Spirit, that's when he faced the enemy. And I want to tell you, there is no way you can face the forces of evil on your own. You will lose. Jude tells us that even Michael the archangel would not bring a slanderous accusation against Satan when they battled for the body of Moses, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. The point is, even Michael, the great archangel, knew where his power came from. The good news is we do not have to fight the battle alone because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Under the provision of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit actually lives inside of you so that you can say no to temptation. And now we have this saying running around, running around, goes like this, I sin every day. You don't have to. You have the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. I'm talking about you can say no to sin. You are dead to sin. Second, when Jesus knew he was going to face the battle, he did it with prayer and fasting. I find this incredibly interesting. Jesus, Son of God, Prayer and fasting. Now, even though the text doesn't say anything about praying, we know those two disciplines, prayer and fasting, go together. That is, after all, one of the reasons we fast. We set aside the physical things of life, God's good gifts to us, to say to God, you're, you are more important to me than your gifts. And we, and we spend time with Him, even though it makes us physically weak, you see. doesn't matter. When God is doing great things and we know we are in a battle, fasting and prayer, getting in touch with the commander-in-chief should be in order. And I said commander-in-chief on purpose. John Piper tells a story in one of his books or I heard in a sermon or something like that. He said too many Christians treat prayer as an intercom by which we summon the maid when we need something, when it ought to be a walkie-talkie by which we are getting in touch with the commander-in-chief because we are in a battle. You say, I, I know I'm in a battle. I know that I am. I'm in a battle for my marriage. I'm in a battle for my kids. I'm in a battle with my job, maybe even my church. Then prayer and fasting may just be what you need to have the spiritual strength, not the physical strength. Who needs that? The spiritual strength to persevere in the battle. Finally, the last thing Jesus used very obviously was the Word of God. Each time he, faced, uh, he was faced with a temptation, Jesus responded by quoting God's Word. In each case, here he quoted from either Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8, which means a couple of things. If we are going to be successful, if we're going to stand tall for Christ uh, and protect ourselves from the fiery darts of the devil, we must know the Word of God. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, we read about the armor of God, speaks about the shield of faith, absolutely, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You want to successfully defend yourself against the attacks of the evil one? Then be a person of the Bible. Notice, now I don't think when Jesus was presented with these temptations, he said, hold on just a minute, let me check my scrolls here and see what the Bible has to say. He already knew what it had to say because he ingested it all of the time. He was the living word, okay? Let's, let's just face that. He knew what it said, and he was ready to use it at a moment's notice, which is why David said, we must hide the word of God in our hearts so that we might not, what? Sin against you. 
One final thought, and then I close. The first Adam, the one in the garden with Eve, was placed in a perfect environment. In the Garden of Eden with all of his needs and wants met, everything you could possibly imagine. He had a great-looking wife and no other women to tempt him. And yet, he did not resist the temptation of Satan. He disobeyed God and was plunged and plunged himself and humanity into sin. But here, the second Adam, that's Jesus, Romans 5, unlike the first, was not living in a perfect environment. Here he was in a hot, barren desert. Places described uh, as an area of yellow sand, crumbling sandstone, contorted topography, ridges running in every direction, dust, hills of dust heap, uh, the, the limestones blistered and peeling, rocks barren and, and jagged. Luke tells us it was a place with the wild animals. There is hardly a place in the world that he could have been more uncomfortable. He was alone without food and he was hungry, but he was full and being led by the Holy Spirit. And he was victorious over the same temptations that the first Adam faced and failed in a perfect environment, which means this, stop blaming your environment. It's not, it. it's not your culture's fault. You have the ability, filled with the Holy Spirit, to obey God. I don't care how evil this place gets. Circumstances and your environment have nothing to do with your ability to withstand temptation. It has to do with your spirit-filled character. Are you standing tall for God? The bad news is, if you do choose, as I've been challenging you to do, be a fully devoted follower, it will cost you. It'll attract attention. Don't be surprised when it comes. When all hell breaks loose, it might just be that you're doing something right. Stand firm. The good news is, Jesus made victory available to us through His victory and through the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can withstand temptation and opposition by being full of the Spirit, remaining close to God through prayer and fasting. When the last time you did that? <gasps> I know it's Thanksgiving. When's the last time you did that? And by being a person of the Word of God. Two questions, I'll finish with these. Are you in the midst of a battle right now? I suspect some, if not most of you are. Second question is this. What are you going to do about it? Let's stand for prayer. Father, I believe... The forces of evil are arrayed against us, particularly against us. We, we seek to be fully devoted followers. We seek, I'm saying it out loud, we seek to be people of the Word of God. We want to be faithful. We want to be holy, and therefore we attract His attention. I know that. But would you, by your Spirit who lives in us, empowers us, He indwells us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, both corporately and individually. We saw that last week. Would you help us to live faithfully and then let come what may? We will not give in to temptation. We will not succumb to opposition. We will not give up. We will stay faithful. We will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is set at the right hand of God the Father. That's what we know to be true. Speak that truth to our hearts. And help us to remain faithful. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.